Everybody, welcome back to America Mao and the Metaverse with the two Paul. Paul, normally I start off these uh, the, our introductions with some uh, sort of something a little lighthearted, and unfortunately, there's not a lot lighthearted to talk about in the world right now. There is one. There is one, one, thing, there is one thing, Paul, and that is that the Ukrainian anti. This is a true story. This is a true fact, as they say. The Ukrainian anti-corruption agency has told all Ukrainians that if they capture a Russian tank, they do not have to declare it, and there's no duties on it. <laughs> I am glad that the people of Ukraine have a sense of humor because I think they've they have shown courage, they have shown fortitude, they have shown stoicism, they have shown everything. And the fact that they can that there are people there who can actually joke a little bit about this stuff is in in a in the traumatic time is is great. But I will I will say that there is one other thing which I'm very pleased about through this whole process. And that is how badly Vladimir Putin has fucked this whole thing up. And I'm going to say that very bluntly. He has misread the global order. He has misread the global responses. I mean, you and I were chatting earlier about this. The fact that Switzerland has come out and joined forces with all of this is as symbolic, as telling as anything of any part of this. And I'm sure that Putin expected that there would be obviously sanctions. Um, that those sanctions potentially could have been economically restrictive, right? I don't think he would ever have envisioned a scenario which I think is the base case scenario where the Russian economy will be on its knees and not only the the central bank will be forced into default, but every major dollar, every major corporate with dollar bonds will be forced to go in the same direction. Yeah. I said it was taking them back to 1998 this morning, and you said it's taking them back to 1898. Walk through all this with us. Walk through the the economic consequences of sanctions and where we are today. I think you're absolutely right. I think we've seen a cascade of defaults today. The, the sovereign bond is at 22 cents now, so it, it, it crashed from 100 to like 55, and then 55 to 22 today. I think what what is causing the, the coalescence of the European countries to really strangle Russia on the ground is there's, a, probably, there's probably a very deep fear that's been made clear to the leaders of these European countries that the, if this keeps on dragging on, that the European banks could get dragged under, right, with this undertow of this Titanovich, which is sinking very quickly. And so you got to cut this off quickly. And by that, I mean, you need a change in leadership in order to start negotiations again for a resuscitation of the Russian economy. There's no discussion with Putin. Change of Russian leadership. Yeah, nobody is going to discuss anything about anything. So I think it's pretty clear that there's a, a lot of people who are anticipating some sort of change in government in order to have some new, fresh faces to negotiate with in good faith. Right to, to start cleaning up this mess, because we're talking about the London property market, the New York property market, major uh, soccer teams. We're talking about all the oil and gas apparatus, a lot of the the uh, commodities apparatus, and of course, you know what, what I've been saying that it's really important to inflation is that Ukraine is a poor economy, unfortunately, but it's a kick-ass economy. It's got manganese, uh, coal, oil, gas, barley, wheat, corn. Bees. It's one of the biggest bee exporters in the world. Who the fuck that? 
And so in terms of ore, in terms of processed steel, uh, iron ore, in terms of commodities, agricultural goods, fruits and vegetables, it's one of the biggest top 10 exporters in the world. And and when you're uh, causing all these economies to crash, you're, you're, you're continuing to shrink that supply whose impetus was caused by this import substitution. So China is being isolated. China is going to start making two of everything. Russia is being isolated. Russia got to make two of everything. Now, the Ukraine is being squeezed. And so a lot of that, there's a big supply constraint happening here at a time when demand is picking up because everybody has concluded they need to be their own economy and withdraw from the international trading system. So you're having supply problems and demand problems that's causing this temporary inflation argument is out the window. I think if people are still saying that, they're, they're cuckoo. Let me let me let me push back. Give you the other side of that, right? And let me let me and let me start by saying, if you take Russia out of the global system, that that actually is a deflationary event, right? And it's deflationary. So you had I saw an interview. Sorry, the FT has got an article in it which has just just come out from Michael Gove saying that they may seize London property of of sanctioned oligarchs without compensation. Right? I saw that. Yeah. So if you think about the Property market, property market in London. If you think about French tourism, um, if you think about Italian luxury goods, right? There is significant. There is significant demand from Russia for all of those, all of those things. Now, I hear you on the commodity side of the equation, and if you've got tight commodities such as such as platinum and palladium out of Russia, for palladium in particular, they may have some issues. But look, I think what we will see in the course of the next few days, and I think it is that imminent, that, the, that OPEC is going to come out and, and announce that they will guarantee Russian, Russian supply should Russia come offline. And look, there will be a buyer for Russian oil. It's called China. And we'll talk about China and how pissed off they are in just in just a minute. But there will be a buy, but there will be a significant discount for that for that oil. So I think that the supply shocks, I think, are valid in the near term. But I think over the medium to longer term, the removal of Russia from the global economy or Russian Russian capital and Russian consumers from the global economy is actually a, de- a deflationary event over time. Uh, okay, I'll, I, I see it. I see where you're coming from, but come on. I mean, Russia is one of the most important, and Ukraine are two of the most important players in the gas market. Europe is, is powered by gas. Germany gave up its nuclear plants and went to gas. Mm. And so if you look across Europe, it's about almost 40% supplied by either Russian or Ukrainian gas. That's going through the roof. I told you, I had this conversation with you. My freaking gas bill was 900 euros in January. I have a two-story apartment, but it's still, I mean, that is, that is obscene. That feeds into people having to push their prices up in order to cover these costs. And when you look at, you know, the kind of way in which Ukraine's a major player in the food markets, in the commodity markets, and in the processed metals markets, that's, uh, that's a big deal. Mm. And, and so you're increasingly seeing supply constraints. And then Russia, and then... Paul, there's something else going on here that's really important. This is going to really accelerate defense spending all over the world. Everyone's going to start. Defense spending is really inflationary. Germany's Mm -hmm. going to go to 2%. Germany was probably at 0.75 or 0.5%. So Germany's going to have a giant leap in spending. China's going to go up. All of Southeast Asia is going to go up, right? All of the the other European countries are going to have to rethink their whole 
approach to their nuclear arsenals and, and so forth. America is going to have to rethink its, its, its spending priorities. And God, Japan wants to go to 2%, right? China's going to probably go up another 15% in, in defense spending. And so all of this together, at the same time that China's building three of everything in terms of massive semiconductor plants that are 12 you know, billion apiece, and TSMC is diversifying its entire semiconductor diversification into Japan, Korea, Arizona, and, and several other places where they're building plants that are $8 billion a pop. And so there's this sort of absurd race for two of everything in order to unglue themselves from this international trade sort, this trade arrangement. Mm-hmm. So, so this is causing supply to go down and demand to go up at the same time. And so mm-hmm. that's, what, that's the problem that I have. We'll see what Powell says today, Paul, but interest rates don't cure that. The only way that interest oh, rates cure that is if you say, I'm sorry, we have a really bad supply problem. We're going to have to crunch demand to a much lower level. And that's a really bad idea. I've argued this for the longest time. I've got 40 years worth of evidence that says that money printing doesn't produce inflation, right? Supply chain disruptions produce inflation. Direct payments from governments to people produces inflation. That's the COVID summary from my standpoint. But interest rates are not going to alleviate supply disruption. They, they're just, they're not going to do that. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of where Russia goes with all of this. And I'll give you a story, um, Paul, I was thinking about, you know, this morning. There's a chap by the name of Andrew Ippendance, who most people won't know, but if you're an emerging market person, you know the name. And yeah, I used to work with him. I used to work with him, yeah. There you go. So, uh, so Andrew was a running Credit Suisse in Russia from the mid-90s all the way through the default. And, again, I'll start by saying don't hate the player, don't hate the player, hate the game, because Mr. Ripendance played by the rules and made himself a hell of a lot of money out of it. But long story short, he was overseeing Russia when it blew up in 1998 and Credit Suisse had a massive hole in its balance sheet. Upon exit, he arranged to do a deal to, to take with him basically worthless, quote-unquote at the time, and I'll stress basically worthless, GKOs, which are short-term, short-term Russian government bonds, and when Credit Suisse dumped them off the balance sheet in, in very in typical central ba- in typical investment bank form at the beat lows of the cycle, Mr. Rippendance rode them all to uh, close to parity and made himself generational wealth. The trouble is this time around, Paul, is that that strategy of his of riding this stuff back to back to maturity or back to back to parity, back to par where they where where they went, is it relied on a on the global pension industry and global invest, investors in general being very forgiving. And they've done it in Turkey, they've done it in Argentina and the like. They're not going to be forgiving of Russia this time around because ESG, particularly the, the governance side of things, is so important to investors globally that they will not invest in Russia ever again while Vladimir Putin is in charge of Russia. Will not happen, right? So whether it's Norges Bank divesting from Russia, whether it's the Canadian pension plan doing the same thing, they are not going back if Putin is in charge, right? Which means the 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 rebound, the adjustment has to happen without the tailwind of global investors and in their very forgiving ways in regards to the emerging world. I mean, whether it's, and look, there's going to be huge losses coming in this stuff, Paul. I mean, whether it's, pick on JP Morgan, the the the, the the private bank of JP Morgan who or or, or HSBC or or City or whoever who have got leveraged loans to the oligarchs in the guise of is it tens of billions of dollars that they have levered to the to the oligarchs in in off their off their equity holdings, off their London property, the whole shebang. And 
those assets are really in question now. I'm not saying there's a long-term capital management around default around the audit around the kids. If you had, if you don't know who LTCM is, look them up. They were the they were the reason that the Fed got involved in in 1998 and cut rates because it nearly took down Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns at the time. But there's going to be huge losses in particularly on the European bank side of things, and you've alluded to that already, because these banks can't help themselves. There'll be hedge fund massive hedge fund losses in some in some places. This is still yet to play out. We can always talk, we can talk about Russia being idiosyncratic and a small part of the economy and not being systemic. And that may well be true. But just because something is not systemic doesn't mean you're not going to have billions and billions and billions of dollars of losses that are going to come to the fore in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, and I think even if Putin's replaced, say, he accidentally falls out of the window or something, I think that it takes a long, long time for the currency to get back to whatever it was before it collapsed 80. And, and we, you and I have seen this many, many times. Bonds that are 22 cents on the dollar, they're going to be lucky to get back to 50 Right. It's rare It's rare a bond ever gets to 22 cents in the dollar and avoids default. Correct. Right. Right. But they're not going back to they're not going back to 50. They're going into restructuring. They're going into restructuring and whatever that restructuring looks like. I think that's correct. I think that's absolutely right. That was my point that, that it's very, very difficult for these guys to get back to anything remotely close to parity, never mind half of their value. Mm. So, so I think there's that. I think there's also two things that are going to play out next. So the next chapter in my sort of evolution with clients today, the next chapters are two. One, cyber threats are going to start escalating, right, between countries, right, because people are getting very desperate and very pissed off that that their infrastructure is being destroyed. And so if Ukraine zaps Russia and Russia zaps Ukraine and then some other European country gets involved, is is a cyber attack on on a NATO country in Article 5 triggered? These are some of the questions that are being asked today. The second one, and I heard this from somebody that is currently on the Romanian border uh, on the way back into Ukraine, but there's going to be, Ukrainians are really pissed off seeing their infrastructure being blown up. So guess what they're going to do? And this is what this is what freedom fighters all over the place do and have done for decades. Ukraine's just turned into a very large Northern Ireland with 50 million people. So they're going to start entering into Russia and blowing stuff up. Right. Yeah. And so this is going to be part of the next chapter. And so I, I predict we're going to get messier and bloodier before it gets better. And I think there's going to be a long period of, of negotiations. And it took 25 years for the, the Good Friday Accords to end the IRA, the real nastiness of the IRA, when the IRA really got, got violent in the late 70s. It took 25 years to end that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's next is the cyber attacks. Are they questions about Article 5? And then the second one is domestic terrorism inside Russia is going to start accelerating. And so I don't think we're anywhere near out of the woods. I do really worry about the speed at which this is happening. And seeing that chart I sent you today, Paul, of of the bonds going from 100 to 22 in basically four days is, is really damaging to the European banks. The banks themselves are a worry, the pension funds, because you're, you're talking about a lot of debt they're holding. And so, yeah, Mayfair property and, and mega yachts sitting in whatever, Barcelona and the French you know, Riviera, but fine. But, I, but I, how I, much, I was going to say, let's be, I think it's when you talk about holding of debt, I think the pension holding of debt, I think is, a, is something we need to clarify because I don't know if there's many in the US context, right? Because obviously a lot of this stuff has been difficult for pensions to hold 
since Crimea and Donbar, right? So since Crimea, you know, there has been plenty of divestiture, and this goes back to the ESG debate, uh, yep. the ESG focus, where people haven't wanted to own this stuff because it didn't sit correctly in terms of the the priorities and demands of ESG-oriented investors, and that is much of the U.S. pension industry has gone has gone down that path. So I think I think your quote, your comments about European banks is very well put. I think that the U.S. pension side of things is going to be less. I think it'll be incremental, if anything. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I agree with you. I agree. With that. I think it's more. Um, Can we talk about. You know, Paul, look, look again today, just as unbelievable, Credit Suisse, there was a, the FT had an article today on, about Credit Suisse basically telling all of its clients, including hedge funds, to destroy any paperwork that was looking at leveraged loans on things you're talking about, the, the super yachts, the properties. So it was direct orders from Credit Suisse to destroy paperwork. It's unbelievable, right? So that Credit Suisse has sort of taken over Deutsche Bank's throne. Just, of, they just of, don't love these investment banks, mate, they just, again, the European and the Europeans are the worst. They just don't learn. They just don't learn lessons. It's I know. Rinse, repeat every decade, just a scandal after scandal, balance sheet hole after balance sheet hole. I mean, yeah, uh, it's just kind of a, uh, it's kind of open, open, open air out in the public institutionalized corruption. I, I, I think this is very problematic for Credit Suisse if these are true. And I, I would imagine that. The FT would have done a great deal of homework before publishing something that damning on Credit Suisse, requesting that its clients destroy evidence that's of, of, of this kind of behavior. Such de- such a deficit. But let's talk about China and the, and the Russian, the, Ch- the Sino-Russian relationship. I mean, you know, again, kids who don't know their Cold War lessons. Yes, yes, the U.S.-Soviet relationship was a bad one during the fifties. A very, very close second, though, Paul, was the was the split, the Sino-Soviet split which was pretty much a function of, correct me if I'm wrong, Mao, Mao not liking Stalin at the end and Mao not liking Brezhnev at the start. And that pretty much was pretty much was the catalyst for, if there was ever going to be a nuclear war during the Cold War, the most likely place was going to be between the Russians and the, and the Chinese. All reports are that the Chinese have just been embarrassed by Putin, that Putin they had those meetings with Xi Jinping in bad faith, and if I know anything about the Chinese, uh, about the Communist Party, they are petty and they have very, very long memories. And this is twice in the last 70 years that the Chinese potentially have embarrassed, the Russians have potentially embarrassed China. Then yeah, so, right. so, so the history is basically that, that, that Russia sort of, or the Soviet Union basically, you know, challenged China to, hey, you guys are one year old. Where China was one year old in 1950 when the Korean War started, Russia was the big brother. Russia became a republic in 1917, so it was a much older, mature economy, and so they, they trusted. Oh, sorry, communist, communist. And, and, and the Soviets just told China, "Go into go into you know, Korea. We'll we're, we'll be right behind you." And of course, the Soviet Union left China high and dry, and China lost one million soldiers. And so that really stuck in Mao's craw for a long, long time. And I think that the relationship never got better. And then it soured drastically in 62, 63, up to 65. And I think that's right. I think in 65, 66, you could have had something really bad happening. And of course, that that was the window that gave Kissinger the opportunity. Now, what I have heard in the last couple of days is basically that China said, hey, Russia has a right for protecting its territorial sovereignty. 
And then Putin just took that to mean China backs me on everything I'm doing. And so that means that if China says we didn't know, you're a fool. And if China says we did know and we didn't say anything, uh, you're you're naive. You're, it's kind of that or complicit, even or complicit, exactly right. So 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 either you're you're a fool or you're complicit. And, and so so now China is is evacuated six thousand of its people on Monday night into yesterday. So all of the Chinese have now been evacuated from Ukraine. And I think China's, as I understand it, I think I'm right. I've had a lot of client feedback today saying that sounds right. And so, so this means that two things. One person who's a very talented analyst, who's really bright, said this is a chance. This is a chance for China to really give the thumbscrews to Putin and get back at him and put Russia in its orbit. I'm a little bit skeptical about that one, but certainly China's going to try to get its power of flesh out of Putin for being embarrassed uh, so much. And so there's a lot that of... Discount, that discount, that discount of the oil and gas has probably fallen by another 15, that probably about 15% below than where it was yes, you know, a week or so ago. But, but I think I think also that the... I, I don't mean to be glib about this. Is, tai, is Taiwan... Does, is Taiwan now the safest place, as, as safe as it's been in a very long time? Because China... At a minimum, has been shown has been shown by the world a world that has done. I think a. I don't think they've gone far enough because I don't think the oil and get the, the still allowing oil and gas sales. I think is is a little bit disingenuous. But they've shown the world what will happen to China if they do something to Taiwan, as in. And I don't yeah. know. If, and again, for me, this points to there was a path towards an inward-looking China and a self for China to be more self-reliant chips, batteries, the whole, you know, the, you know, more use of renminbi offshore, et cetera, away from the dollar system, that only accelerates now. Because China, if they do have ambitions towards Taiwan, and historically they do, they, they're not in a position to shield themselves from the economic fallout of the West doing to China what China, what the West did to Russia. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a much stronger economy. It's a real economy. They make it, you know, it's the second biggest economy. Russia today, I just calculated in terms of purchasing power parity on a, on a dollar basis, given the currency move, is kind of up there with Laos and Bolivia now in terms of per capita income on a dollar basis. And China is it's getting very high in, in the mid to high teens. Yeah, yeah. And Russia's at about probably right now about six and a half thousand dollars, right? So the Philippines is doing is better off than Russia now, to, to, to give you an example. And so I, I very much agree with that. I think I think that's absolutely right. I think if you're Taiwan, you're gonna say, you know what, let's not build that big huge plant in, in Arizona. Let's just keep it in Taiwan. Because Taiwan's probably feeling like invading a country is really, really hard. If you have like a decent defense system, you can you can you can create a really bloody nose. Well, uh, but, but it's not just that. But I think it's just the fact that I think that Putin went. Putin thought this, and I suspect that Xi Jinping, to some extent, thinks this way as well. And that's purely speculation on my behalf. But I I think that they both think thought. That the global that the global community didn't have the spine to do what it did. Agreed. Or more, or more yeah. to the point that that the response was, if it wasn't going to be a military response, that the response was utterly, at the end of the day going to be toothless. Yeah. Yeah. The reality and, and is by taking the central yeah. bank off SWIFT, right? By taking yeah. the central bank off SWIFT, you are affected. This is economic terrorism at its highest order, right? That they have, they have 
By doing this, they have ensured default and have ensured that the economy is brought to its knees. And by the way, in doing so, have exponentially increased the probability of a coup against Putin going forward. And China, and particularly Xi Jinping, does not want that same scenario. He doesn't want to face that same scenario. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I I think the country that has stepped up the best under brand new leadership and and the cabinet has barely sat in their seats for like literally a week is Germany. There's a very good article in The Atlantic today about that, about how Germany has probably surprised the world more than any other country in the world. I mean, more of a surprise than Zelensky is Schultz, uh, no relation to me. And he has stepped up. So, so Germany has been the real uh, wild card here, which has basically organized Europe. But I, I, I'm sitting in Europe, and all I'm hearing here is, man, w- what happened? Europe has woken up and has... Yeah, and, and look, and they, weren't, they weren't helped by... And look, they, let's face it, they were not helped by Macron or Biden, who faced election issues, who faced election issues. And, and, let's, and let's be clear, Biden's tepid response was about oil. Macron's tepid response was about gas, right? And that's true, because again... If you were sitting in Paris and not Barcelona, would you be voting for Macron after receiving a 900 euro gas bill? Yeah. Right? Probably not, right? So again, Olaf Schultz has, the, has the, the luxury of just coming to power. So any mistakes that were made, he has time to compensate for those. But it's pretty clear that who the true leader of Europe is right now. And, and again, I go back to, let's go back to the point. The Chinese don't want to, the, the Chinese now have a playbook about the Western response will look like in the event of they do something in Taiwan. And whilst they are much more economically stable and robust than what the Russian economy is, it's pretty clear it would not come up, go, get away from this unscathed if they were to, to take yeah. it, go down this path. I think you're absolutely right. And I think they're, have to, they're, they're probably juggling a lot right now internally and, and trying to get a response. Because I think I, I have a feeling they're very pissed off by being duped by Putin. And I think they are looking for a long-term plan to, I wouldn't say get revenge or get back on him, but they're looking to play this play this being duped to their advantage by trying to uh, ex- extract promises from him. And so they have entered into the fray today as part of the negotiation process. And everybody gave a giant, like, oh my God, they just a huge eye roll. But I'm also very skeptical, but, but they want to be part of a negotiated settlement uh, for this. And I, I'm not sure how that's going to work. With Russian allies, Pakistan, North Korea, Syria, and Venezuela. Iran. So, Iran, still. What? Iran. 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 So, so if there's a war, it's like, okay, you know, you got, you know, America, Britain on one side, Italy and Germany on the other side. You know, here you have NATO, Europe, America, Asia. Japan, Korea, Australia against Iran, uh, Venezuela, Syria, Pakistan. Well, but, and, but, and again, that's, you know, and it, but what concerns me though, Paul, is that you've got Putin who has, you know, whose grip on power has been loosened dramatically in recent, in the last week. Like he, he has royally messed this up, right? The only thing that despots have in common is that they never believe they're out of power, right? So yes, des- right. desperate, yeah. desperate men do desperate things. Yeah. Um, and it's concerning for me that there is going to be a, a... Ukraine gets deteriorates significantly in the weeks, in the next week or so, as he realises that if he's going to do it, he has to do it all, he has to go all in. And for me, that's very concerning. 
Yeah. And, and, and yeah, don't forget about the history of Russia. The Tsar was gone in one day. When Lenin died, Khrushchev, Stalin took the Soviet Union in a completely different direction. Khrushchev, after the, the screw up in the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev was gone six months later and he was overturned in one day. And Stalin was vilified. Mm. You know, and Gorbachev, right? The Soviet Union ended in one day. So let, let's I mean, not kid ourselves. These things happen all the time now. Alexander II, he was assassinated, right? The, the, the history is, of Russia is full of sudden one-day overthrows, assassinations, and governments collapsing. I heard today there were some, demonst- some large-scale demonstrations in Moscow. I was not able to confirm that. I heard that in the last couple of hours. And, and of course, the event for a despot is when the police and his own soldiers, especially the palace guard, turn on the people. And one of the things that I had sent to clients today was a really good article that was about the the editor of one of the major newspapers, who's one of the last independent papers left. And and this guy made the point that Putin has destroyed the young generation of Russia for 20 years. Mm. And we need to understand what that means. I mean, the the people in their 20s and 30s, their economic future has been destroyed. And there's going to be, they will, there's, the brain drain out of Russia from going forward will be enormous. Yeah, right. And so these guys are extremely upset. They may want to try to resuscitate and, and get some of the, the collapse back into some sort of normalcy. And I think that's what we have to watch, whether there's, whether there's violence in Moscow or St. Petersburg. What, so so what, what does the next week have in store? Well, I am going to dig further into what, what, what's up with you know, this whole narrative that's evolving around China. And I want to dig into that. I want to uh, look into some of the de- into more detail about the banks, the European banks' exposure to this Russian crap, these Russian real estate and mega yachts and all that other jazz. Citibank disclosed yesterday that they had a $10 billion exposure to Russia. So, yeah. so these numbers are, are pretty big. I still want to focus on the, on the financials and, and see what's going on with these exposures and whether that's basically in the price. But I, I'm afraid to say in talking to one of my sources, like this one source on the Romanian border with Ukraine, I, I think I, I, I hadn't thought about this, but I, he said, I think you're going to get very quickly, you're going to get Ukrainians going into Russia and starting to blow stuff up because they're so furious at what they see happening to their own country. And so I, I think we need to look at Ukraine as like a giant Northern Ireland for a, a significant period of time. It's a great way to think about it, mate. Our hearts and prayers and whoever you pray to up above, send them over to uh, the Ukraine. Paul, good to see you. We'll do this again. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.